Hello and welcome everyone once again back to the podcast known as Audience Surrogate. I am Steve Vieira and it's great to be here as we explore the world of film and TV for another week. I'm joined today by my ever-reliable co-host, silently lurking in the corners of our recording session. (laughs) You usually give me a bit of a drum roll, so I was waiting for whatever that was going to be. I know, but this time you were our cold open, and uh, you know you left the audience cold until those warm dulcet tones heated the show right up. So, Gilbert, great to have you. Thanks for bringing the heat. It's all about building suspense. Exactly. Anticipation. And this is a podcast that's all about anticipation because we sit on the edge of our seats until we can get in our seats in the theater. There are so many great films that we have had our eyes on this year. Uh, By my count, we are about halfway through the year. We've just wound down the month of August. And when I say halfway, what I mean to say is two-thirds of the way through the year. I was going to say. Yes, thank you. Always counting on you to keep my math straight. Not my strongest suit. Uh, But... This year, uh, on my private list of films, there were about 60 that I was tracking, and now as I look it up, 40 have come out. That's a lot of movies, a lot of time in the cinema. So literally and two-thirds. Yes. Uh, I did. It's, it's really beautiful how the math works out, in fact. <laughs> because now that we uh, have reached this milestone, as much as Gilbert and I try to bring you all the news from Hollywood and beyond, it sometimes can escape us. And despite our best efforts, we are not able to make it to the theater timely to talk about everything we've seen, or we just don't have enough airtime to fill your ears and imagination with all this great talk of film. So today we are going to correct that wrong, and we're going to spend a little bit of time going over movies we missed, some really exciting titles that have come out in the past year that we have not yet had a chance to cover. Hopefully you've seen them, or if not, maybe they've been on your list, or maybe they deserve to be on your list after hearing our conversation today. So very, very exciting. We've got a lot to talk about. First, just a quick reminder that if you're not getting enough audience surrogate in your diet, your doctor wants you to increase your intake, you can follow us on socials. We are on Twitter. I said it. As the Audio Surge Pod, we are also on Instagram as the Audio Surge Pod. Remember to like and follow us on those platforms so you can stay updated when we release new episodes and you can see whatever other errant musings Gilbert and I might be subscribing to on a given day. And that way you can never miss a single beat and you will be part of the Audience Surrogate Experience TM. Without further ado, let's stop missing out. Let's start diving in. We've got a couple titles this week that were the discussion. And the first of those is a movie that came out right before we launched our inaugural episode of this here podcast. That is John Wick Chapter 4. Cinema goers have now had quite the relationship with John. Uh, First bursting onto the scene about 10 years ago in a sleeper hit. He is one of the most reliable gets at the box office. It doesn't hurt that he is played by the legendary Keanu Reeves. And so this title was very much anticipated even coming into this year. It was something I think that people saw as a potential film to revive flagging box offices after the pandemic. And When it hit, as John Wick always does, it really hit with a bang. 
John Wick Chapter 4 was a very exciting film. A lot of people really looking forward to it, ourselves included. It came out, I believe, the week before we sat down to record our first podcast. So it was something that we were hoping and eager to discuss. Granted, that was a while ago now, about six months. So Gilbert, why don't we just dispense with any secrecy? Count of three, we'll both say what we thought about this movie at once. So one, two, three. It kicked ass. All right. Those are those are synonyms. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you might be more literal than I am, because if there's one thing John Wick comes to do, it's pet puppies and, and kick some ass. And he was all out of puppies for the majority of this film. So definitely an ass kicking adventure, very much in line with the rest of the John Wick franchise. I thought it was amazing. You want to give a little bit more insight into the ass kicking nature of your review? Absolutely. The John Wick movies, for all their triumphs and occasional flaws, th- these are action spectacles first and foremost, and Chad Stahelski somehow finds a way to up his game every single time he makes one of these movies. Granted, he's getting a bigger budget and a b- better opportunity to do that in the first place, but it's truly incredible to see what he can do with an apartment building or a staircase and make some of the most thrilling action set pieces we've seen in a very long time. Entirely in camera, all of the stunt fighting is sensational. Donnie Yen is in this movie, and he's probably doing the hardest job of anybody because he is kicking absolute ass while also playing a blind man. And I can't imagine how difficult that is, but he is so good at it. He's so much fun to watch. And I think that this movie puts a nice button on the story of John Wick as we know it so far. I'd be shocked if this is the end of the franchise entirely. But as far as the events that were set in motion when Alfie Allen killed his dog, that story is concluded. And I think these movies have done a very good job of making us understand John as a character, of making us understand the world he chose to leave behind and then got roped back into. And it, it's just so much fun to watch. And especially considering this is one of the last roles of the late, great Lance Reddick, as John Wick-esque action movies go, there's nothing better than John Wick. Amen to that. I completely agree. And you touched on a lot of points that also resonated with me as I watched this film and as I've been thinking about this film. But before I get into that, I do just want to take one housekeeping note. Uh, So one of the iconic lines of the John Wick franchise is, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. And one thing that's going to be back for this episode is our spoiler warning. So uh, you did not really spoil anything. You did not really give away any critical details. And I thank you for that. You're a professional. But As we move forward, my dear, dear listeners, please be aware that we will spoil these films to high heaven. Uh, It's not spoiling them if you have seen them. So if we talk about something that might tickle your fancy, feel free to hit old pause on the podcast or tap those arrow buttons a few times so you can skip on over it uh, and then come back and give it a listen. But any of the films we discuss today are going to be fair game. We are going to be dissecting them, having their liver with a nice Chianti, and really just fully immersing ourselves in the experience, including spoilers. So take that at your own risk. It is the standing rule that we have here on this podcast, but for the sake of protocol, want to get it out there. That being said, Gilbert, you're exactly right about John Wick. To me, it felt uh, variably 
either the most dramatic or melodramatic film in the John Wick franchise because all of these movies are a vehicle for action spectacle, as you noted. There is a loose plot that allows John Wick to just spring straight into the action. In the first film, it was the, you know, death of his dog and theft of his car. And the ensuing films find some little way to carry on that momentum to trigger some other plot event. Um, But John himself is never really the focus of the story. Whereas in this fourth installment, I felt that there was an attempt to understand the past week, months. I don't know how long the the series has been running for. I think there's an argument that you could say this is only this entire episode from John Wick 1 until John Wick 4 is inside of three months or four months. So it's really a lot faster than the pace of production and release of these films would allow you to believe. But in this movie, it's not just throwing John at an enemy and and having him deal with the aftermath, or it's not having waves of assassins come for John and having him defend himself, which it is. There's a lot of time spent understanding the type of man that John is, where we know that John is the most capable, baddest of assassins to ever do it. We now are seeing him come to terms more fully with the life he's lived, with the actions he's taken, what he's lost and what he wants out of his life. Um, and so at the end of the film, when John is is kind of dueling, not just with an enemy, but with a lot of those ideas, uh, it does feel like there has been some resolution or that there's been more of an arc for him, that he has arrived somewhere rather than just a top one, one more enemy. Or, uh, I did feel that they were putting more work into actually develop or wrap up with a bow the journey we've we've watched with john for these past few years i agree and to be clear i would be shocked if this is the end of the series keanu seems more than down to keep doing them chad stahelski he's got no reason to stop now and universal very much wants to keep their successful franchises running but as far as Diving into John as a character, what matters to him and why he keeps doing this, whether or not he wants to. I think this was as good a closure on this chapter, no pun intended, of John's story as we are wont to get. One thing I also want to highlight in this one is the cast, because beyond the usual Keanu and Lance Reddick and Ian McShane and Lawrence Fishburne, we also got the additions of, as I said, Donnie Yen. We got Bill Skarsgård as the malicious Marquis. And one of my favorite up-and-comers playing the role known only as Tracker is Shamir Anderson. And this movie got an insane amount of points for me for having, for having him in it. Because I may have been the only human on Earth who watched Stowaway on Netflix. But holy shit, this guy is good. And I am so happy that someone else saw that besides me. Because Shamir Anderson has such a wonderful presence on screen. The way he incorporates that into his character, who we're not totally sure what we're supposed to think of him through the entire time we're watching it, is fantastic. And I only want to see this become a springboard for him to get more and more roles because I love watching this guy. 
It is a real expansion of the cast in a way that we have never seen before. So there have been a couple of additions. I would say that there's probably been, in each of the preceding John Wick films, maybe a featured actor. So in John Wick 2, we had Common, I think, was really the heavyweight that they pulled out to try to oppose John. In the third film, we had Halle Berry as a former colleague of John who joins him on a mission. But this is not really a series that's built around a huge ensemble uh, until now. So we did have, as you said, Donnie Yen, Bill Skarsgård. We had Shamir Anderson. Clancy Brown sneaks in here uh, for a little cameo as a member of the an official from the high table. And I just love any time I can see Clancy Brown. What a versatile actor who never disappoints. Oh, he's great. They re- they're they trying to build out a little bit more of the high table lore in this world. And Hiroyuki Sonata, let's not forget. He does appear in the beginning. I'm I'm a sucker for a Japan sequence, and I think that it's it felt missing, uh, especially from the John Wick series, which is so indebted to uh, an Eastern kind of sensibility and, and martial arts style. So I thought that going over to Osaka fit right in. And of course... Hiroyuki Sonata is Hollywood's preferred Japanese actor. You know, whenever they need a Japanese guy and Ken Watanabe isn't up to it, you got to call Hiroyuki Sonata, man. So your next call. I I hate uh, minimizing his contribution to that, but it's unfortunately true. But I, I love seeing this guy every time he shows up in this, in Bullet Train. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he is an actor who gets around quite a bit. If you don't recognize the name, then you would definitely recognize the face because he is a chameleonic, perhaps, character actor. Uh, not necessarily because he disappears into the role, although he does do a good job with his performances, but because he's everywhere, you know, he just gets around all the time and uh, he does a lot of great work. He's very prolific. Uh, certainly the case in this film. What we haven't acknowledged here is that at the very end of the film, after John Wick wins the duel you alluded to earlier, he dies. He's killed. Um, And it's pretty shocking to see John felled by an enemy just because he has been built up as this Baba Yaga mythical boogeyman character. And then we see him go out. He's given a, a hero's end, you know, that befits the storied life we've seen from him. But I did think it was an interesting choice because this is an incredibly popular, beloved series uh, that has a very uh, willing star. And so I was a little bit surprised when they chose to retire him and and put him out to pasture at the big, uh, at the big continental in the sky. So <laughs> did you think... It, it was notable or that they maybe had a plan when they were, you know, killing John Wick? Or did you think even then this isn't the end for our guy? To be honest, no. Not for a second do I believe that he is dead, gone, and buried. This man has survived how many wounds, how many bullet holes, and we're supposed to believe that this one is what killed him? I don't think so. He's not dead. He's napping. He'll be back. And there is already the ballerina film on track for release next year. Uh, June 7th, 2024 is the release date we have right now. Who knows if that will move or not. Sign me up. Yes, the Anna de Armas John Wick movie uh, has... I, I 
have practically taken out a mortgage to uh, <laughs> to make sure that I can access this. I will I will directly fund the content and I will pay for a ticket if it means I can have this. Um, and apparently a fifth film is in development for John Wick. I think there's a lot of directions they could go, whether they are going to try to revive John, um, or to show that he wasn't dead after all, whether they might try to go some kind of prequel route, unclear. Uh, but I agree. I think it's very safe to say that John is, uh, will be returning to our screens. Clearly, we really enjoyed this film. We're excited to see where the franchise is going next. So let's really uh, dig into the meat of John Wick here. Are there any stunts or any action sequences from this most recent film that really just blew your socks off right into the into the next theater? I don't remember if it was one shot or one sequence, but when it was an overhead view of him using the incendiary rounds clearing out room by room by room of an entire building. That to me was incredible. That was like, how the fuck did they do this? You know what? I don't care. It's awesome. It is literally explosive. Um, because as you're watching this, it's so visually captivating that it's a perfect fusion of that kind of style uh, and substance. Uh, that is a gorgeous sequence. For me, I said it before, the very opening almost when John is on the run in Japan, the high table starts to catch up with him, and then they have a free-for-all in the hotel. Really loved that. That's the first introduction of the Donnie Yen character, and he has just a really great debut. There's a scene where there's like this sumo wrestler guy who's trying to go up some stairs, and so someone jumps up on his back and keeps stabbing him as he's taking steps. It's just so hardcore. Love that. Stolen directly from my God of War gameplay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But again, I just thought it was so pulse pounding and, and high intensity. I really like that. It, uh, there is, of course, in uh, at the end of the film, and it's you know a larger part of the sequence you were just describing, uh, John Wick fighting through Paris on his way to this climactic final duel. And there are various little components of that which are really exciting and really really fascinating to watch but again they never they never turn off the gas with john absolutely not all right another movie that came out this year we did spend a little bit of time discussing it more in terms of its impact on the box office than the film itself that is the super mario brothers movie this one was on my most hyped for the year uh it came in at my number eight and it was one that I saw in theaters. Uh, Gilbert, I believe you have subsequently seen this one as well. I have. I I recently sold my soul for an AMC A-list membership, but before I did that, I did not choose to see the Super Mario Brothers movie in theaters. I did not choose to pay money to see it. But I watched it at home, and it, it was fine. I think I hate what this movie represents more than its actual execution, but it's entirely there. It, it didn't make me feel any particular way about anything. The best scene is, for me, when Princess Peach is training Mario how to survive in the Mushroom Kingdom, and he keeps going through the obstacle course and having to go through it again and again, and that's just exactly the video game. And I don't want people to think that I'm just confirming what I already suspected, but... Illumination is a, is a pretty low bar for me, and this is 
right up there with the rest of them. I've never seen a movie that is so clearly made by people who love the source material and abjectly not written by any. That was my big observation leaving the theater for this one because I didn't have a bad time. I actually did enjoy myself and I felt the dopamine rushes at all the places where I think the writers, be they AI or human, wanted me to. Uh, But it didn't feel like I was watching a movie so much as a remaster of a Mario game. Uh, One thing that really interests me when we talk about film or art in general is the idea of adaptation. How do you take something from one format and translate it into another format? How does it keep what is integral or essential to the story and change it, accentuate it, etc.? It doesn't feel like anything is happening pursuant to that process with the Super Mario Brothers movie. It doesn't feel like people sat down and said, how can we render this story in a new way? It felt more like, how can we convert these assets to a new medium? Because the only moments where I really felt some some joy or some engagement with this film is when it was having me experience something with which I was already familiar I really like the way this film used music and incorporated the Super Mario soundtrack because it's iconic and I've heard it a million times and I love being presented with things I already know about. It makes me feel like I'm in on the joke and it, you know, makes me relive all those moments where I I had fun with it in the past. It makes you feel smart for recognizing it. Yeah, of course. So... Most of the moments where I was having fun in this movie were those little Proustian flashback moments where I can say, I remember when I played this level, or I remember when I have had this experience, or when I have seen these people in the past. None of that came from the text or the context of the movie. Uh, It was really just trying to spoon feed me something that I knew I liked, um, Pretty much like when you go to the store and they say like, oh, now we have Reese's ice cream. It's like, oh, I love candy and I love ice cream, so this must be good. It's not really taking me to a new place or it's not really developing some kind of new recipe. It's really just, you know, here's here's that same sugar you love, just coated in a different way. So... I did I did enjoy it, you know, and I do think that there are opportunities for them to be a little more creative or take this series in a new direction now that they see it can be a success. But I didn't think that there was any kind of creativity or any kind of uh, deeper engagement with the material beyond just rebranding it and putting it in front of people. That's exactly what it is. This is nothing more than a recreation of the Mario property in cinema instead of as a video game. And that's fine. It it does the job, but would I say I loved this movie? Absolutely not. Will I return to it? Probably not. I, I guess I'm glad I saw it because there are there are parts that I enjoyed. The uh the cart racing while completely out of nowhere and unnecessary, at least honors the spirit of Mario Kart and Rainbow Road, and that was nice to appreciate. I I liked the bit where Mario hated the taste of mushrooms because they kept returning to that, and that was funny. Mm -hmm. Chris Pratt's a good voice actor. No matter what you think of him as a person, he knows how to do this. But I did not get anything from this 
that I felt I was missing in my life. If I wanted the feeling of enjoying the world of Mario and the Mushroom Kingdom, I would play one of the Mario games. And this is a passable substitute for the real thing, is pretty much the end of it to me. Agreed. And especially when I'm watching a film like this, it really makes me wonder who the audience is or who it's for or what movies need to do to be successful now. Because as I was watching this and I'm thinking, you know, this is perhaps competently done if a little bit half-baked or a little bit phoned in creatively, you know, I ask myself, I could have a deeper experience with Mario just going back and playing the games, but is it the purpose of this film to give me a deeper experience with the material or do I need to have my relationship with Mario redefined as a function of the film? Is it good enough that it's simply just flashing bright colors and familiar shapes on the screen so that kids can be happy for an hour and a half? Ooh, can I answer that? Yeah. No. <laughs> But it does kind of make me a little bit sad because these type of video game adaptations, quote unquote, are only going to become more common. We have more in the pipeline. We talked a little bit last week with Barbie about how now there are more Mattel projects in the pipeline um, as a adaptation of their toys and certainly with other brands. Kill me. So we're going to be seeing more and more of this. And so I think studios are going to have to interrogate that exact question how much can we simply recycle nostalgia and hope people will pay for the ticket to it, to see it? And how much do we actually have to give people something new for their money? How much do we have to help them understand what this this product represents, what it means, its place in the world, uh, you know, or, or just take it in a new direction? Well, it kind of does lead me into our next film for this list, which is Air. This is the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck vehicle in which they chronicle the development of Air Jordan shoes the at Nike in the 80s. As much as a shoe is not an intellectual property, it's, it's a literal product. You can put your hands on it and your feet in it. Um, this is exactly the kind of movie that we were just talking about a moment ago. This is a movie where people already have a relationship to this item and the movie is trying to get them to once again buy into that relationship or to understand the importance of that relationship. You know, now it's not with a video game, now it's with a shoe, or maybe now it's with a company, a sport, what have you. But this movie, for all of the intrigue and for all of the emotion it tries to build into this story feels like it exists as part of the extended marketing of the Nike Corporation. It shows how they were these underdogs seeking to represent the best interest of the player, of the sport, of their industry, and I'm sure that is true on a certain level. But they just get to go on this triumphal march uh, where they were always looking out for the right interests and they were always allowing the, their work to speak for itself and now today shoe, shoe buyers and consumers across the world are rewarded with this truly unique visionary shoe and it's changed the world i'm wondering like who's this for you know who who needed the biography of the air jordan what is this making me understand about nike or about my shoes is this just making me feel good for a purchase that they want me to make it's a cynical read, but 
the film didn't really do anything to challenge that or show that it was doing anything more than that. So again, kind of who is this film for? What is it? What is it trying to do? Is it enough that it's just here to have fun and tell a story or do we need to think about it differently in the context of its, its corporate associations? There is something inescapably dystopian about this idea of a movie where corporations are now not just people, but characters we have to root for and against. And that is something that has to be grappled with as we discuss this movie, as we enjoy it, and we have to temper that enjoyment and recognize we are being sold to even now. That being said, I've seen this movie twice. I personally love it. This is my favorite of Ben Affleck's directed movies by far. It's basically a procedural and a sports movie at the same time. It's this, like, as you said, it's this underdog story, but it's also about the process of signing the deal, of, of making the deal with Michael Jordan and the Jordan family to make this new kind of shoot, this new kind of marketing campaign for this shoe. And I'm going to slightly disagree with you on what you said there, because I think that this is more than just about the story of the shoe. I see this as the ultimate story of the impact of Michael Jordan. I don't think we need a Michael Jordan biopic because this movie captures the significance of what his importance was to the game, what his importance was to the culture. Like when we were growing up, I remember Michael Jordan being synonymous with athleticism in general. He was one of the biggest and most famous athletes of all time. And what I think this movie does very savvily is it kind of pulls the curtain back and says, well, was he actually that good in the first place? Or was that something that Nike made us believe to sell these shoes? We may never know, but the fact that that's even a question is kind of its own answer, isn't it? And I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a very smart move that Michael was not an actual portrayal in the movie. I like that he was more of this outside figure looming on uh, Sonny Vaccaro and Phil Knight and his team's campaign to get him to sign with Nike. But I like that this is about what he did for the sport, that players get residuals of their marketing contracts that they sign with. That is a huge thing that, as this movie would tell it, Michael Jordan paved the way for and changed the industry of sports and athletic gear into what it is today. I'm not saying that that is entirely on Michael Jordan and the Jordan family, but it's certainly a contributing factor. And the way this movie tells that story, I think, is riveting. And I'm also going to push back a little bit on what you said about it not really making a point for itself beyond just here's the story of a shoe. Because ultimately, I think that when you're making a movie about a brand, it is inescapably about how capitalism constrains the people who are forced to operate within that brand. Mm -hmm. For example, we have this character named Rob, played by Jason Bateman, who is on Sonny Vaccaro's team and is a divorced dad. And his daughter barely gives him the time of day, except for the fact that he gets to give her free shoes all the time. And Sonny Vaccaro puts everything his he and his team have on this one gambit to get Michael Jordan to sign with Nike that it puts his entire team's livelihoods at risk. And I thought that was a very smart inclusion 
to show how operating within a capitalist system like this really puts the constraints on what everyone is there to do, which is to find and hone greatness when they see it. And that is what is driving Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon through this entire movie, is the greatness that he sees Michael Jordan as being before it even happened. I will concede there, you're right, that this movie does a good job underscoring the human stakes behind its business campaigns or the business projects it's it's undertaking. Because yes, we do see the Jason Bateman character obviously wants to be able to keep his job to preserve his livelihood and his relationship with his daughter, how that means something to him. And I believe he actually kind of claps back at uh, Matt Damon's character, you know, spoken like someone who doesn't have a six-year-old daughter or something waiting for him back at home. So they do a good job there. Similarly with the Michael Jordan character, uh, we don't really get to see Michael Jordan, but we do spend a lot of time with his mother as played by Viola Davis. And she talks a lot about how she wants this shoe to be more than just some kind of product or something that, that people see in a store. She wants it to be part of Michael's legacy and she wants it to actually make a meaningful difference in terms of how the shoe is marketed, sold, um, and how the profits are dispersed to the family, you know, so how this is really going to change the, the this future of the Jordan family beyond just making a lot of money for Nike. And the black experience in America. I think we get a little bit of that. I don't think it's the goal of this film to really kind of chronicle the, the you know, racial politics of basketball or Nike in the 1980s. No, of course not. But while the film doesn't present Michael Jordan as a, a true character, we do kind of see the back of his head, essentially, but... He's, he's not fleshed out. We do see the real Michael Jordan. There's a couple of moments, I, it's in a scene where, like you were saying earlier, where this film is really laying out the importance of Michael Jordan to the culture, where as Matt Damon is talking about the reasons why he should take the deal, we're seeing real news footage from the life of Michael Jordan about his successes, about some of his uh, dirty laundry that came out into the private life and the struggles that he had and the ups and downs of his career. So it almost felt like this Babylon-esque montage where we were seeing like, this is the magic of cinema or this is the magic of Mike, you know, and what it meant for the world. Kind of similarly to that, as I was watching this film, when I saw the relationship between Sonny Vaccaro and Phil Knight, I wasn't always thinking about it in terms of the relationship between two characters in the movie. I understood their dynamic or I understood what was happening there in terms of the dynamic between Matt and Ben, you know? So it's not, I understand who these characters are. It's, I understand who these actors are, and therefore I know who these characters are, or I understand kind of what's happening between them. So what did you think about some of the metatextual elements of this film? Not just, you know, this is about Nike, but the way that it relied on those real world, uh, that real world knowledge to inform how you feel about the plot. I do think it's interesting what the relationship is between Ben and Matt going into this movie, because I remember seeing an article a few years ago where Matt Damon did an interview about being in one of Ben Affleck's movies, and he said he didn't want to do that because Ben Affleck always has to be the main character. That was true in The Town, that was true in Live By Night, that was true in Argo, but that's not true here. In this one, this movie is about Matt Damon's character, and Ben Affleck is on the side, and I think that serves them both extremely well. So I can't really say what I think as far as the meta text aspect of it, 
other than all of these characters are played by actors who have done very similar roles to this in the past. And that allows us to bring what we know about them from previous roles into this movie to inform their characters and how they interact with each other. I just think that this movie feels so crowded with personalities. Uh, and I think that you're right. This movie does work. I don't want to sit here and, and bang my fist on the table and say that this is a bad movie, you know, for, for bad people. Cause it's not, uh, it is very well made. Um, it's just that this is a movie about, as you pointed out, one of the biggest personalities and figures in our culture in the past 50 years. Um, and the people who are here to tell that story are similarly some some of the most notable actors and talents that we have. So Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Viola Davis. And then you've got some great supporting talent down the line as well. So it just felt like this movie was trying to help leverage those relationships we have with these people over the long tenure that they've been in the public eye and trying to use that to tell the story as much as it's, it's narrative elements, because I felt that, yes, you know, looking at Phil Knight and Sonny Vaccaro, they're not exactly like a Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, but I understand looking at these people, they have a long history together. They are two people who are not afraid to kind of go head to head with each other and they still can feel some sort of mutual respect or feel that they're kind of engaging as equals. And when they need to, they can really work together like brothers to kind of get things done as they did when they first got started. Exactly. So I, I couldn't help but see some of those elements in there as well. Similarly, I feel like when you cast Viola Davis as Michael Jordan's mother, you're kind of telling us a lot. You're letting Viola Davis play herself or a version of a character that she's played a million times. This, understated woman who will see right through you and cut you to pieces uh, if she has to. No one does it better than her. So I just felt like this film, perhaps I'm saying it was trying to be very smart or very conscientious with its casting uh, because this was a, you know, the ultimate movie star movie where I didn't think I was watching an actor. I was watching Matt Damon. You know, I was watching Viola Davis. And that kind of informed my my understanding of the film as much as kind of what the dialogue was or, or what the outcomes were. That's fair. Uh, so Air is another great title. Uh, it's a quick watch too. You know, it's very it's very easy, and it is truly a feel good film. Uh, I think you do walk away from that one feeling like again, even though it is a victory for capitalism, you do feel that truly the right people were celebrated and succeeded at the end of the day. You know what, man? I I can rail against capitalism all day, every day, and I do, but ultimately I can't do a thing to stop it, and I can't deny how much I enjoy watching this movie. By the way, remember to like and subscribe, guys. <laughs> and so we have one more film to discuss, uh, Gilbert, if you choose to accept the discussion, uh, and that is a film that we have tried to discuss on this podcast before, I am, of course, referencing Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which was Gilbert's most anticipated film of 2023. And previously, we did record an entire episode breaking this one down and diving deep, diving all the way to the bottom of the Bering Strait into the sealed computer chamber of a Russian submarine. But alas, due to some technical difficulties, that episode could not make it to the air. So we want to give uh, space to discuss this film right now. 
Gilbert, in the past, I asked you to give your review of Mission Impossible in seven words or less. You said Christopher McQuarrie gets to do whatever he wants. I echo those sentiments. But today, to kick off our discussion, uh, I'm going to take things in a bit of a different direction. So in the spirit of the Friends naming convention, the one where blank does blank, in two years or so, when someone says, oh, I love the Mission Impossible movies, what's your favorite? And someone goes, the one where da-da-da, da-da-da, explain how you think people will describe this seventh installment. How will they describe Dead Reckoning Part 1 or remember it to someone who's not as diehard as we are? I think that the movie did a very good job of making sure we know exactly what that is going to be because they marketed this stunt months and months and months before the movie came out. This is ultimately going to be known as the one where Tom Cruise jumped a motorcycle off a mountain. And if it goes down that way, it's a much-deserved label because guess what, guys? Tom Cruise jumps off a motorcycle from a mountain, parachutes onto a train. It's quite spectacular. Mostly in that order. Uh, <laughs> but, again, the the stunts have really just been ever-increasing. Uh, Tom Cruise's willingness to put himself in danger in the line of fire only knows escalation. And, yeah, he does that here. That's not the only stunt. There are some other great stunts in this film. And just sequences of editing and filmmaking that are fucking spectacular. Yeah, the it, it really does just take a cake. It's harder to envision a type of action spectacle that's better executed than this. We were talking about John Wick earlier. Uh, and if you want combat, if you want martial arts, that's probably the high point of that particular art form. But if you want truly some kind of uh, international action romp, if you want your chases, if you want your sort of death-defying stunts and feats of, of human, you know, gymnastics and athleticism, then yeah, you're not going to do better than better than this. I I loved not just that motorcycle paragliding sequence. I love towards the end of the film as the characters are trying to get off this sort of runaway crashing train. They have to climb up these various cars, avoiding little dangers as they do so. And it's really just so stunning to watch. This movie fucking rules. Yeah, like it's... It was a great one. Not least of which because I have finally gotten something that uses Haley Atwell to the best of her ability. I have loved Haley Atwell for so freaking long. And this is the first movie since Captain America that feels like, okay, this is an actress we can use. And she absolutely runs away with this movie. That was going to be my response to the question. The one where blank is the one where Haley Atwell first shows up. Because... She pulls off the hat trick of kind of outshining Tom Cruise in his own movie because for as much as this is still the Ethan Hunt show, she comes in and her arrival, her potential uh, entrance to the IMF and to the team is what really drives the action. Um, and she becomes an integral part of this mission succeeding. She doesn't slouch. You know, she does not miss her opportunity and she is overflowing with charisma. She is incredibly committed to the stunts. She is a vibrant on-screen presence. And she really has to go toe-to-toe with Tom Cruise, not necessarily 
as an antagonist, but as someone who has to show that she is perhaps equally capable, you know, that she belongs in this world, uh, that she can keep up with him. And she absolutely does. She's a highlight of the film, um, truly radiant. And I'm really excited to see how she's used in the future, because this is probably the best debut we've had since the entrance of Ilsa. I was going to say, she is used as well as Rebecca Ferguson is in Rogue Nation. Christopher McQuarrie very deftly capitalizes on what our impression is of these actors before we even get a chance to really know them. Rebecca Ferguson has a very interesting face. She looks like she can hide a million things behind it. She's got an air of mystery about her, but she's also fun and charming. And Haley Atwell is, she's not that. She almost has like a girl next door vibe to her. She is funny. She's spunky. She's smart. She's sly. She keeps up with Ethan in a way that he was not prepared for because Ilsa does this for her job just like Ethan does. Grace does not. And I think that that is really where the movie goes from good to great is how we get this acknowledgement of how Ethan first joined the IMF. And then we get to see that through Grace's eyes as well. We get to see her be offered the choice and choose to accept, which is such a wonderful scene. Yeah, it really is exciting when you see her embrace the gauntlet that's been laid down for her by Ethan, you know, and which she is tacitly accepted by following along with the team and helping them out. And then she finally realizes that it is within herself. It uh, almost parallels the the birth of, of Ethan Hunt. Not that we've ever seen it, but we start to learn about it in this film where you learn he was given the choice. He was tapped into the IMF and he became an agent. Now we're seeing him really almost uh, prepare to pass a baton or pass a mantle um, we don't know if that's what's actually going to happen because Tom Cruise has been resistant to leaving the, the captaincy of his own ship. I hope he never stops. So I don't know. <laughs> the man literally never stops. Um, but you have to wonder what role Haley Atwell's Grace character will have in the future. You know, I think that she's going to be more than just an ally for this adventure, you know, and I don't think that they're positioning her as a romantic interest for Ethan. I think that she's going to become her own fully fledged agent, someone who can serve alongside Ethan as an equal to Ethan, maybe with a little bit more training. Um, and I think that she, even if she doesn't fully replace Tom Cruise, she will become a future of the franchise, someone who is just as much the face of it as he is. That's very much the vibe I get from watching this movie. And I, you know, perhaps most amazingly, I have faith that she can do it, you know, because she really rises to the occasion. Nothing would make me happier than that. I was overjoyed when I heard she was joining the cast of this movie. Christopher McQuarrie is so good with his actors. He's so good at using them. He makes these unbelievable sequences that feel both thrilling and artistic at the same time. And this is exactly the role that Hayley Atwell has needed for so freaking long, and I'm so happy for her. I hope she joins the series regularly. I hope she gets involved in the stunts as much as Tom Cruise does. I hope we get a million movies with her. One thing I want to ask you about, because I know we discussed it previously and I know how you feel about it, uh, is to go off a little bit about the villain of this film uh, and how you think that this villain stands apart from other antagonists, other foes in the Mission Impossible franchise. This is by far my favorite iteration of 
all-knowing AI as a villain that I have likely ever seen. As soon as we've got an understanding of what the entity is in that room with Charles Parnell and Henry Cherney and Carrie Elwes, when it became clear that this is what the stakes of the movie are, this is what everybody is racing after, and this is what Ethan is putting himself up against, I was like, oh shit, this is going to be good. And you know what? It was. I absolutely loved this movie. And I think that the entity presents a very important challenge to Ethan and his team because of the relationship that he has to this Gabriel character, somebody who killed someone in Ethan's past that led him to joining the IMF. It forces Ethan to ask, and Luther asks him directly, what is your objective? What do you want here? And I am so curious to see what happens next in Dead Reckoning Part 2 whenever we get that. I hope soon. I don't know if that will be affected by the strikes or by any of the other tumult in Hollywood, but I believe we were promised Dead Reckoning Part 2 within the within a year, correct? Within 2024? No? 2025? That was the intent that they were going to shoot them back to back and release them one year after the other, but then COVID happened and everything was very difficult to arrange. And Dead Reckoning Part 2 has not been shot yet because the actors and the writers are currently on strike. That's not going to begin filming until, at the very least, the actors' union has struck a deal with the AMPTP. Well, that is heartbreaking. And I do hope that the strike is resolved soon so that actors can get back to work. They can be paid for their hard work. The same for writers as well. But... That may not be the case. I agree with you. This is probably the best example of a film creating an AI supervillain. And I think it's also an example of films becoming accidentally timely. There was a lot of discussion last year when Knives Out Glass Onion uh, released about how it was this parody of the ultra wealthy and kind of these evangelizing tech billionaires right as Elon Musk was buying Twitter and making all of these outlandish decisions. And again, I think it's funny now that we have this movie about AI that's going to unseat the world order and and leave us all living under its yoke, right as we're seeing all of these new stories about how chatbots and AI are coming and revolutionizing and there have been all of these issues and we don't know what it's going to be like to develop in the future and is there going to be an AI arms race amongst the nations of the world so it fits right into the world of Mission Impossible because this does feel like something with world-altering implications but unlike other villains or disaster scenarios that Ethan Hunt has prevented before it feels more real to our world than ever before. You know, someone terraforming the glaciers of the world so that one third of our water supply is destroyed is certainly megalomaniacal and would be bad. But the idea that AI is going to capture all of us, that feels a little more close to home right now. And I can't stress this enough that Christopher McQuarrie had this written, at least in part, in like 2019 well before the dawn of AI and chat GPT in our lives. And I'm not saying he necessarily saw this coming, but boy, does this feel like a movie for right now. It does. I think it works really well for this escalation of the Mission Impossible franchise. Ethan, you know, is always able to get his man. Uh, He is always more than a match for whatever villain he faces. 
And very often at the end of each film, there is kind of a literal face-off. There is a, a confrontation and unmasking. I think the best example of this is when they corner Sean Harris in his little glass tube that fills with smoke. Um, but how can you have this kind of face-off for a faceless enemy? You know, how is how is Ethan going to defeat the entity? Because so many of his victories are not quite him gloating, but overcoming the idea that this villain has cost him something, you know, or that this villain thought it could defeat him. He can't gloat, you know, over this kind of enemy, um, or he can't feel like he, I think, is really... Uh, be, it's it's master uh, in the way he can when he can look Sean Harris in the eye and say mission accomplished or gotcha. So I think it's going to be interesting, and we're already seeing kind of the extreme lengths Ethan has to go to within the film to try and stay one step ahead of the entity. But it's it's I think the greatest villain Ethan has ever faced. Um, you know, they go to great lengths to try to underscore that point in the film. Uh, but it's certainly unlike anything he's ever faced before. So I think that it not only is timely, uh, but I think it's well executed. And I think it works well for the character in the franchise. Completely agree. I loved this movie. It was number one on my hype meter for a reason. And I got what I paid for. Well, that is what more can you ask for than that? Part two. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, yeah. Uh, don't mark your calendar quite yet. So Gilbert, as you noted, Mission Impossible was the number one movie on your hype meter. Uh, and for dedicated listeners of the show, you will remember that our second episode saw Gilbert and I lay down our nine most anticipated films releasing in 2023. Now that two thirds of the year are out, uh, and two thirds of the movies we were wa- waiting for have also been released, Many of our most hyped movies have already played to audiences, and we have already had the chance to enjoy them. So we will be kind of checking in on our hype meters to see how the movies we selected fared, how we felt about them, and whether or not we feel good about that selection, or whether, you know, maybe the hype didn't pan out the way we felt. So before we get into this exercise, I think it's important for Gilbert and I to take a moment and read through our initial lists to catch everybody up. So starting from the bottom and working to the top, here are my nine most anticipated films of 2023. Number nine, Hypnotic. Number eight, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Number seven, Asteroid City. Number six, You Hurt My Feelings. Number five, Oppenheimer. Four is Mission Impossible. Three is Barbie. Two is Dune Part Two. And number one was Killers of the Flower Moon. My number nine was You Hurt My Feelings. My number eight is Dumb Money. My number seven is Argyle. Number six, Gran Turismo. Number five, Killers of the Flower Moon. Number four was Civil War. Number three was Oppenheimer. Number two, The Killer, and number one, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one. So should we start with the elephant in the room? Yes, maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, the shifting sands within these lists. Or spice, if you will. Or the, Yeah, the shifting spice. So 
there have been some casualties on our, our hype lists already because not all of the films we identified back in March are actually going to be making it to cinemas as originally anticipated. So here's a few things that have moved. The big one, the elephant in the room or the sandworm in the room, is Dune Part 2. This was my second most anticipated film of the year, and as a result of the actors and writers strikes, it has been delayed from November 2023 to March 2024. So it is not the longest delay in the world. It's about four months uh, before we'll actually be able to enjoy this film, but it does mean that it's right off of my hype list uh, and that my hype will have to live to get excited another day. Really tragic. I really wish that I were getting my hands on this sooner because I believe the film is is completed. It's not like the film is delayed so that they can do reshoots or so that they can finish principal photography so that it can go through editing. They have this one in the can already, uh, and we've even seen multiple trailers which look phenomenal. But because the actors will not be available to promote said film, Warner is going to try to hold it until a safer rainy day. And let's be honest here, when we say the actors, we mean Zendaya. And Timothy Chalamet. Kids love Tim. I saw someone suggest that Warner should delay Wonka and Dune until May of 2024, and then they should go all out on Chalamet 2024. (laughs) Oh my god. And they should release Dune and Wonka in the same month just to get the full bang for their buck. Don't say it out loud, they're going to do it. We'll see, man, I don't know. But that, sadly, Dune Dune has moved... Other films that have moved, Argyle, this was Gilbert's number seven, has been pushed into 2024. Additionally, the film Civil War, which was on Gilbert's list, number four, uh, is pushed out of this year as well. Some of our, it will be impossible for us to judge our 2023 hype meters until halfway into 2024, it seems, which is a real bummer because obviously we got into the show because these films excite us and we want to be able to enjoy them as soon as possible. So... That's very sad. Again, all the more reason for these strikes to come to a fast resolution. But that just means we will have to find our cinematic kicks elsewhere before the year is out. However, there's already been a lot of uh, celluloid played. So let's talk about what we have enjoyed. Starting from the bottom up. My number nine film was Hypnotic. Didn't see it. Uh, I heard bad things. I heard that this was not great. I was interested in it because it was a collaboration between Robert Rodriguez directing and Ben Affleck starring. It was supposed to be a thriller about uncovering a conspiracy. And I thought that had some promise. I thought it could have been a nice programmer, but it just wasn't a priority for me amid some of the other movies that we were covering. So I know this is now on Peacock. I will go check it out. Otherwise, I do not have much to report on this front. My number nine was You Hurt My Feelings with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies. Did you see this one? I actually didn't. It was another one that was on my list as well that I didn't get around to seeing, uh, but I do intend to come back and catch it. I would say this was exactly what it looked like. It was a wonderful, intimate family crisis drama about a writer who feels her husband does not support her in her latest escapade. And I expected it to be a lot funnier than it was, but it was honestly a a bit more sad, a bit more vulnerable. And Nicole Holof Center knows what she's doing. If you saw Enough Said, you probably have a good idea of what to expect from this movie. And 
Is this going to end up on my top nine movies of the year? Probably not, but it's still a great movie. It's still a great time. I'm still glad I watched it. I'm glad to hear that, and I definitely will go to pick this one up, just because I love laughter, um, and I'm down to get it wherever I can. So my number eight was the Super Mario Brothers movie, and I'm pretty happy with this selection, not because it impressed me and it turned out to be beyond what I expected. It wasn't disappointing. I wanted more, certainly, but I think that it was a fine time at the movies. You know, it was enough to make me feel nostalgic about my childhood again, and that's okay. I don't think I would have taken this movie higher than in the seventh spot, but I do feel good that it about its box office. Uh, it's, it's made over a billion dollars. So even though the movie itself is not really that uh, revolutionary or that innovative, uh, I am glad that it was successful. I do love the win for Nintendo, but this movie was kind of exactly what I thought it was, and it is what it is. Yeah. I feel pretty comfortable leaving Super Mario Brothers where we uh, left it earlier in this podcast. It It's fine. I'm probably not going to watch it again. Good for you, Nintendo, I guess. My seventh hyped movie was Asteroid City, and I really did enjoy this. I probably would have taken it maybe a little bit higher had I the opportunity to go back and do my list again. I just really enjoy Wes Anderson, and this is a year of directors. There are so many directors who are putting out either big studio projects or tourist projects. So that was one thing that interested me, what we would see from kind of a signature American director getting back into the into the wheel. And I really enjoyed this movie. I want to see it again. I think that the more I watch it, I will come to new understandings and I will feel some of it more deeply. So this was a great, I thought, return to form for Wes, something that was a little bit more personal uh, than the stories he's told recently. And it really did resonate with me. Uh, There's a lot of layers here. So I think Asteroid City is a great film. It might sneak its way onto one of my favorite, you know, top 10 or top nine of the year. We'll have to see what else is in store. But I think that this was a real treat, and I'll be very eager to revisit it. I went in a bit nervous because I hadn't fallen in love with the last two Wes Anderson films before this, but this is definitely my favorite he's made since the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I look forward to revisiting it, look forward to showing it to other people, and continuing to find what nuggets of detail he's hidden inside it. So what about your next film, Gilbert, that you were excited for? Uh, My number eight was Dumb Money, which hasn't come out yet. My number seven was Argyle, which was moved because God hates me. So that brings me to my number six, which was Gran Turismo, which just came out last week as of recording this podcast. I saw it in the AMC Prime Laser Ultra Pretty Screen version, and this movie kicks ass. I, I really enjoyed it. It's so much fun. As someone who grew up being told over and over and over again that video games aren't a real hobby. My overall reaction was, fuck yeah. The racing sequences are fantastic. The cinematography of the cars and the way it incorporates video game language into the racing is inspired. This is by far my favorite Neil Blomkamp movie. I'm not a huge fan of District 9. I thought Elysium was pretty but kind of bad. 
this feels like something that I want to see him do more of. At the very least, he definitely went to the same school of drone cinematography that Michael Bay did for Ambulance. And I mean that in the best possible way. The way the drone shots are used as the cars are racing and flying off the road is incredible. And while similar to Air or any other movie this year, this could just be considered a commercial for a video game or for cars or whatever, the smart thing that Neil Blomkamp does here is that he shoots the whole thing like it is a commercial and every shot of every car just looks like absolute sex. It is beautiful and it's so much fun to watch. We get a great performance from David Harbour, from Orlando Bloom, and the story of Jan Martinborough is frankly inspiring. This is part and parcel a great sports movie that I'm sad to see how little success it's gotten, both critically and commercially. This is one that I will come back and see. I wasn't able to get uh, to the theater quite since its release, but I'm very intrigued by it because... In addition to all of these straight-up video game adaptations we've been getting, it feels like we're also getting some movies that, as you said about Air, help emphasize the cultural importance of video games or of this type of art form in our new modern lives. What I'm thinking about when I say that is Tetris, which is another movie we didn't discuss in too much detail this year, but I think we both saw and liked, Mm -hmm. where it really helps you to recognize and appreciate the work that went into this iconic game or into the Game Boy and how that suddenly became a household association for millions of people around the world. And similarly for Gran Turismo, again, I was like you where I grew up and people told me that video games were not a real hobby or they were a waste of time, something childish. And I think about video games as really powerful stories, you know, that can deliver really important messages and actually get you to experience powerful decisions. So it's great to see a movie that says, you know what, we're not going to adapt a video game necessarily, but we are going to show you the impact that video games have had on people and how they can change people's lives, you know, what they do mean in our world. And I thought that was very interesting. So I think that's a take that I'm very excited to see explored on screen. And that's exactly what this movie is. And I'm also excited to see, you know, fast car, you know, vroom, vroom. Um, like it certainly looks like it has all of the rivalry and intensity and intrigue that goes into a lot of like high octane sports uh, and competition films. It's got a lot of familiar actors who I really like, but yes, I'm excited for this one. I think it'll be a fun film. I'm glad to hear that you liked it. I think you'll like it a lot. So Gran Turismo, hopefully I will be able to see it before it leaves cinemas. Uh, If not, I will definitely make a point of streaming it. The next film to discuss, it was the number five on my hype meter. Uh, Gilbert looks like it was your number three. And it has gone on to become one of the signature films of this year. Of course, Oppenheimer. I do feel a little bit conflicted about this one. Obviously, had I known that Dune was not going to actually run this year, I would have moved this up. I actually even kind of debate how I I rated it in relative to Mission Impossible. But a big reason that Oppenheimer was number five for me was just because I was so unsure what to expect of it or what to make of it. This is a biopic. It is a Christopher Nolan movie. It is ostensibly a World War II movie because we're dealing with the construction and deployment of the atomic bomb. But 
I wasn't sure how the director was going to approach this story. I wasn't sure the lens he would be taking or exactly what he would be trying to say to audiences about this historical figure or about this moment in our history. And while I think this is one of Nolan's best films, I don't know if it's quite my favorite film of his. It certainly is quite a stunning film, very powerful. I think that it is one that demands a a rewatch and that demands kind of further analysis. So... I recognize the achievement here, uh, and there's a lot, I think, to celebrate about this film. I'm not blind to its flaws. There were some performances or some choices that I would not have made or I would have liked to see, you know, a different route. I do think that as much as Nolan is setting himself a large assignment, the film does kind of stretch, you know, and there are film, there are moments where you feel its length. As important as it is, it also feels invested with a certain self-importance, too, which I think kind of works against the film at certain points. So, I liked Oppenheimer. I respect Oppenheimer. I don't know that I'd say I love Oppenheimer, but I feel pretty comfortable where it is on the list, um, just because it was such a variable. This is my third favorite Christopher Nolan movie, and this is my number three on my hype meter, so we're pretty on brand here. I think that Christopher Nolan needs to, more than anything, stop making movies with the intent of them being important. Because that's where I think he can get in his own way the most. That's what I think the issue is with Dunkirk and Tenet and Oppenheimer. Like, don't get me wrong, this is a great film. I'll be shocked if this is not Christopher Nolan's best picture win. But I do have issues with it. I do find it frustrating. I do think it is too long. I do think that it is saturated in dialogue that is both dry and blunt at the same time, which can be hard to swallow sometimes. But the filmmaking speaks for itself. The performances are fantastic. And you know what? I came to see an explosion and I saw an explosion. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I certainly will say for the film is that it delivers on its promises. Like you get you you get everything that you would need in a film about Oppenheimer. You get your explosion And it is done to the same Nolan level of craft that you would expect and he would demand of himself. So yes, it's a highlight and it will go down, you know, I mean, it was part of Barbenheimer for crying out loud. It will go down as one of the most remembered films of this year, even independently of its Oscar uh, success, which I think will probably be significant come March. But yeah, I think that we had this film right on. I agree. Um, I think I think that we we appropriately weighed it from a distance. But I know something that got you even more excited was Mission Impossible, which, of course, as we already noted, was your number one pick of the year. My number four. Damn right. <laughs> and is this going to be my number one movie of the year? Probably not. Usually my number one movie of a given year is saved for the things that catch me off guard, that surprise me, that I fall in love with, that maybe aren't on everybody else's number ones, but but makes sense for me. This movie delivered on all the hype that I had for it, and I love it for that. I can't wait to see part two. I can't wait to see what is next for everybody involved. And the fact that this movie is being branded as a box office failure is a crying shame because this movie fucking rips. And it didn't deserve to come out a week before the biggest cinematic event of the last two decades. It deserved a much better run than it got. 
Yeah, I think it was certainly a victim of timing, sandwiched between the release of Indiana Jones and then Barbenheimer. It did not have its time to fully shine. I saw this in a packed house of people who absolutely loved it. And I think for people who have seen the film, that has pretty uniformly been their reaction that this kicks ass. I know that there are some Tom Cruise naysayers out there, some people who think, you know, that the series is a little bit overblown. But I think that pretty much if this gets you into a theater, especially if you were lucky enough to see this in IMAX, as I think we were, then there's no doubt that you're going to really enjoy it. Because it's just everything that you want out of going to the movies. You don't always have to overthink it. We have our hero. We have incredible stunts that are actually being performed by the actor. And then we just have a pretty well-written and well-conceived set of adventures for them to go on. They jump across the globe. Everything is filmed actually on location, I believe, so you authentically feel as though you are traveling from the Middle East to Rome, back to the Orient Express, to Venice. So it has that old school James Bond feel where you're actually, you know, following him across the world on his missions. And the action does not disappoint. The The new characters do not disappoint. Everyone in front and behind the camera is operating at the highest level. And what you get is a film that reflects that investment of effort uh, and, and talent. So again, when part two finally comes out, they will have to make it an event worthy of this initial entry. But I think they can do it. And I think that you will be seeing Dead Reckoning part two on our eventual hype lists once it has a firm release date. Oh, I guarantee it. For me, the final film to discuss before we look ahead to, you know, what's what's still waiting for us in this year is Barbie. Um, and going into this year, I did have a sense that Barbie was going to be big. I had a sense that Barbie was going to shake up a lot of people's expectations. But like a lot of films on this list already, I didn't really know what to expect of it or what to make of it. So I saved it the wild card slot in my rankings. Perhaps there was a certain level of latent masculine pride that kept me from putting a Barbie film in the, the top spot of my most anticipated list. But ultimately, this film was everything that I could have wanted or hoped it to be. It surprised me. It gave me more than I, I expected. It's really stayed with me since I've watched it. I've seen it multiple times. I've taken different groups of people to see it. So I think that it's hard to conceive of a better summer movie than Barbie. It manages to kind of just be light and fun while also being smart and having a message. It's bright. Again, we're talking about a lot of these practical effects and a lot of the work in Barbie was practically done, you know, for some of these things uh, to make it feel like this Barbie world is an actual place. And the characters and the performances are transcendent. Barbie and Ken are going to be some of the biggest Halloween costumes this year. There's already a lot of Oscar talk from Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. Greta Gerwig, I definitely think, will pick up a couple of nominations for writing and directing the film. So Barbie defied my expectations by surpassing them so spectacularly. You know, my number one is pretty locked in and couldn't move, but Barbie... I think it could have fit in even as my number two if I had just a little bit better idea of what it was going to be. But I was so happy with Barbie and I think it's going to it's gonna really have a long life beyond its, its already 
record-breaking uh, theatrical run. Barbie is a smash hit. There's absolutely no denying it. It is everything every movie wants to be. It is original. It's well-written. It's well-directed. It's well-performed. And it is the biggest movie of 2023 from the box office perspective. And you know what? It deserves it. We, we recorded a full podcast on what we thought of this movie. I think we did a great job going into its themes and what it is and what it isn't. And I don't really have a lot to uh, to add to that. But the phenomenon that this movie has become is truly something else. Like, I, I can't think of the last movie that was not a sequel that made this big of a splash in the culture. I mean, I think you would probably have to go all the way back like 10 years and say something like Avatar. Yeah. Uh, just because everything else in the past couple of years has been totally subsumed by IP, you know, and Barbie is its own form of IP. You know, it's not like people had never heard of Barbie before the film educated them, but yeah, it is something that we don't really see anymore. And part of that is just an exercise in actual creativity, you know, an actual, just kind of like letting a, a once in a generation filmmaker go at a unique project like this and, supporting those efforts uh, all the way to the bank. I think Barbie was exactly, as you said, a smash hit. There's no two ways about it, no denying it. This, I'll spoil, will definitely appear on my top 10 uh, list when the year is out. You mean top nine? I do mean top nine, but my top whatever, you know. <laughs> I, I would say there's a chance that it could be top five even, you know, but again, I'll kind of hold my breath until a little bit more of the race is run. Absolutely. And that kind of brings us to the last of the movies that have already come out. Everything else on our list we're still waiting for for the next few months. Exactly. Um, and so just looking ahead quickly, still remaining for Gilbert is Dumb Money, currently releasing, I think, September, October. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon and then The Killer. Uh, so really just some great projects, really just some awesome films still to come. I'm also holding out for Killers of the Flower Moon. That was my number one most anticipated film of the year, which is uh, now just having a, a full-on wide theatrical release. Uh, I think that's going to be fantastic. God bless. Yes. And I hope that Madi and Leo and, and Bobby D, I hope they all can get people out into the theaters um, I think that film is going to be truly special. I, I can't wait for that one. And we've got great trailers out for that. We just got a trailer and a poster out for The Killer, and it is taking... Gorgeous. And it is taking all of my energy and effort not to watch it, because I, I don't want a single thing spoiled for this movie. I want to go in completely blind for, for both of these movies and just let them wash over me. I, I trust Marty and David Fincher completely. One thing I will have to spoil for you, Gilbert, about The Killer uh, is that Michael Fassbender is The Killer. You monster. <laughs> How uh, dare you? <laughs> um, That's okay. But, I knew that. but other than that, we will have to just let these films happen to us when they happen. And the sooner the better. Are there any other films not on the hype list that you're kind of excited for this year? Uh, everything I've seen about Napoleon looks very, very good. I'm... A bit wary by the fact that Ridley Scott has a four and a half hour cut of it, but you know what? The man's on a roll lately, and if that's not the version that ends up in theaters, I may eventually have to see it anyway. Yeah, that one, I'm very conflicted about Napoleon. I think that will go down as one of the films I'm most excited to hate for this year, um, because 
Ridley Scott is one of my favorite directors, but I think he is much more successful directing science as opposed to historical fiction. And part of that is my own uh, historical snobbery. But the trailer for Napoleon looks fantastic. The, the He does a great job really recreating the worlds of whatever setting um, he, he chooses. I am interested to see what happens when that movie finally does hit the screen. It's it's certainly one to wait for. I'm kind of excited this year uh, for Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things, which is coming out in December. I believe that just had a release at Venice, and it was is quite praised for its performances and its direction. So I think that's going to be exciting. Again, another one where I'm not too, too sure what to expect, but I'm ready for it to take me on a journey. So a lot of good stuff that we have coming up for in the wide world of cinema, uh, and we will be here to hold your hand through the whole thing. All right. Well, this has turned out to be quite the sprawling episode, and you know Gilbert and I can say plenty, but we have said so much already about these films. I hope that you will go out and see them or revisit them. And remember, if there's something that you liked or something that you thought that we didn't quite touch on, you can go online and let us know your thoughts at Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Remember, we are here to be your surrogates, and we can only do as good a job when you let us know how to surrogize for you. It's a word I just coined at this very moment. And so please do go online, like and follow us. Remember to go on Spotify, Apple Music to subscribe to the pod, because we want to be here for you, and we hope that you'll be here for us. Because that's, you know, Gilbert and I are hoping we're talking to more than just each other. So thanks again for joining us. It was, of course, a pleasure to review these past few months in film. And until next time, I am Steve Vieira. I'm Matt Gilbert. And thank you for joining us on Audience Surrogate. Take care.